Well, join with Glenn. Welcome everybody out. We do have those that are visiting. We're delighted that you've come to be with us. And we invite everybody to get your Bibles out. This is a lesson that would be very helpful for you to follow along with your Bibles here in Daniel chapter 9. Daniel chapter 9. As we're going to talk about the 70-week prophecy here of Daniel chapter 9. And if you have any questions, why well, feel free to say, hey, i got a question about. you got a disagreement, say, hey, i got a disagreement about. We'll sit down and we'll look in our Bibles and we'll just try to come to uh, an agreement and understanding of what the Bible teaches. And certainly uh, glad to be back after being gone three weeks. And uh, anyway, Lord willing, uh, two weeks from tomorrow, I'll leave to go to Nicaragua for a couple of weeks if everything's kind of calmed down. They've had some protests and uh, anyway, it's kind of calm now. There's sort of nego- negotiations with the government. And, but anyway, just pray about the situation if everything will go as well, I'll leave in a couple of weeks to head to Nicaragua. All right, Daniel chapter 9, let's begin by just reading the text, sort of get the thoughts in our mind and look at what's being said here. Daniel chapter 9, let's notice here verses 24 through the end of the chapter. It says, Seventy weeks are determined upon your people and upon your holy city to finish transgression and to make an end of sins and to make reconciliation for iniquity and to bring in everlasting righteousness and to seal up the vision and the prophecy, and to anoint the most holy. Know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the commandment to restore and to build Jerusalem unto the Messiah, the Prince, shall be seven weeks, and threescore and two weeks, or sixty-two weeks, the streets shall be built again and the wall, even in troublesome times. Verse 26. And after threescore and two weeks shall the Messiah be cut off, but not for himself. And the people of the prince shall come and shall destroy the city and the sanctuary, and it shall be with us a flood until the end of the war desolations are determined. And he shall confirm the covenant with many for one week. And in the midst of the week he shall cause the sacrifice and the offering to cease, and for the overspreading of the abominations he shall make it desolate, even unto the consummation. Uh, and uh, that determined shall be poured upon uh, the desolate. Alright, so there you have Daniel chapter 9, the reading of this prophecy. It is quite an interesting prophecy. It is rich in meaning, and we hope that we, as we study the, this passage, that we'll be benefited. Now, there are three things that we want to do in our study tonight. The first thing that we want to do is to talk about the assumption that is made in association with this text. And we'll talk about why this assumption uh, leads to all kinds of problems. And then we want to talk about, well, what does the text actually teach? And we want to emphasize exactly what this text is talking about in this prophecy. And then the final part, we want to just draw three practical lessons uh, from, the, uh, from the study here of Daniel chapter 9. All right, the first thing we want to do is talk about the assumption that is made in studying this passage. The assumption is that looking at this prophecy, that it talks about the 70 weeks or 490 days, is that a day equals a year. That in this prophecy, that a day equals a year. That's the assumption that is made. And so therefore, if you talk about a week, a week has seven days, so seven days a week, times 70 weeks would be 490 days or 490 years. And so the assumption is that this prophecy is talking about a forecast from Daniel's writing that would be 490 years into the future. Well, there's a problem with that. It's just not going to work. Now, let's notice a couple of texts 
Over in the book of Numbers chapter 14. Numbers chapter 14. You remember chapters 13 and 14 sort of go together. Chapter 13, they chose out 12 spies to spy out the land of, of Canaan, the, uh, the land of Palestine. And they come back and say, oh yeah, it's a fruitful land and there, there's abundance of, uh, of blessings there. But there are giants in the land and there are walled cities and we can't take it. So 10 the spies said, no, we can't take the land. Joshua and Caleb said, yeah, yeah, we can take it. You know, God's on our side, we can take it. But the people believe the 10 spies. And as a result of their unbelief, God punished the people. And that's what we read here in Numbers chapter 14, verse 34. It says, after the number of the days in which you searched the land, even 40 days... Each day for a year shall you bear your iniquities, even forty years. And you shall know my breach of promise. All right. So they spied the land for forty days, and for forty years would be the punishment. So the prophecy of Numbers chapter 14, a day equals a year. How do we know that a day equals a year in Numbers chapter 14? How do we know that? Because it said it. Exactly. The text said it. It says that a day equals a year. So no question about that. Now, let's notice over there in the book of Ezekiel. In the book of Ezekiel, there in chapter 3, Ezekiel chapter 3, notice number 5 and 6. Ezekiel chapter 3, verses 5 and 6. It says, For I have laid upon thee the years of their iniquity according to the number of their days, three score, or three hundred and ninety days. So shalt thou bear the iniquity of the house of Israel. And when thou hast accomplished them, lie again on thy right side, and thou shalt bear the iniquity of the house of Judah forty days. I have appointed thee each day for a year. In the prophecy of Ezekiel chapter 4, in the prophecy, a day equals a year. Now, how do we know that a day equals a year? Because the text says so. We know that because the text says so. So, a day equals a year in the prophecy of Numbers chapter 14. And a day equals a year in the prophecy of Ezekiel chapter 4. But where in Daniel chapter 9 does it say that a day equals a year? It doesn't. It's simply an assumption of people. They read some prophecies that a day equals a year. And so the assumption is made. The presumption is, well, a day equals a year. And so when you talk about 70 weeks or 490 days, it's talking about 490 year prophecy here in Daniel chapter 9. The problem is that you will run into insurmountable problems trying to say that this prophecy of Daniel chapter 9 is 490 years. I don't take that position because it just you get problems that is just not going to work out trying to fit in the dates and the events that are talked about in Daniel chapter 9. It, just, it doesn't work. That's just an assumption of people. Don't assume things when it comes to the Bible. That's the problem. People make assumption, and when you make assumption or presume something to be so, and you run into problems, well, you better go back to the drawing board. It's kind of like Martin Luther, he come up with the idea that we're justified by faith only, and he thought he had it down. Then he comes to the book of James chapter 2 and verse 24, where it says, you see then how that by works a man is justified, and not by faith only. And it's like, man, he scratched his head, and... He couldn't figure it out to sort of harmonize. It seemed to be a, a real problem, and it was in the justification of fa- by faith only. So his conclusion was, well, you know, James is just a straw book, and we ought not really count it in the canon of Scripture. And so he just rejected the book of James. And that's that. Because that's not how you deal with the Word of God. Just throw out something that doesn't fit with your theology. 
So it is, if you assume that a day equals a year, you're going to run into all kinds of problems in the prophecy of Daniel chapter 9. So what does the text, what does the text teach us? Well, first off, it's about thy people and thy holy city. That's what verse 24 says. As you look there, as Daniel opens this prophecy, he says, Seventy weeks are determined upon thy people, that's the Jewish people, and thy holy city, which would be the city of Jerusalem. So it's a, it's a prophecy that concerns the Israelite nation, the Israelite people, and the city of Jerusalem when we look at Daniel chapter 9. Now, there are three blocks of time that are described when you read the text. We read about the seven weeks, and we read about the 62 weeks, and we read about one week. So if you add 62 plus 7 plus 1, hey guys, 62 plus 7 plus 1 equals what? Do you know? He's counting. Hold on. 62 plus 7. 70, exactly. So if you just add those numbers together, seven weeks, 62 weeks, and one week, you come up with 70 weeks. Exactly right. But there are blocks of time that are described in the text. Now, when you talk about these blocks of time, the seven weeks or 62 weeks or the one week, is merely symbolic. That's a position that's going to make sense when you study Daniel chapter 9. It just look at it as symbolic blocks of time. Because sometimes in the Bible, when you look at numbers, sometimes it means exactly that number. Like, for instance, they would be in captivity 70 years. Okay, that was an exact prophecy. You read about their numbers 14. You're going to wander in the wilderness 40 years. Well, so they did. They wandered for 40 years, and that whole generation passed away except Joshua and Caleb. But sometimes numbers are used symbolically. For instance, in the book of Psalm, in the 50th Psalm, in Psalm 50, notice down there in number 10, it says, For every beast of the forest is mine, and the cattle upon a thousand hills. Now, wait a minute. Are there only a thousand hills in the world? Well, no. Thousand is symbolic. That is, the cows upon a thousand hills, or more than a thousand hills around Kentucky. But the point is that a thousand is symbolic that every cow in the whole world upon a thousand hills, that is the total hills of the world, well, they're gods. And then notice there in the book of Matthew chapter 18, in Matthew chapter 18, when uh, Peter is talking with Jesus about forgiving your brother, notice there in uh, Matthew chapter 18, look there in number 21, <clears throat> number 21 and 22. Then came, Peter to, then came Peter to him and said, Lord... How shall my brother sin against me, and I forgive him? Till seven times? And he saith unto him, I say not unto thee till seven times, but unto seventy times seven. Now, Peter probably thought that was pretty generous to forgive seven times. And Jesus said, no, no, not seven times. No, seven times seventy. Is Jesus saying that you only have to forgive your brother 490 times? Now, 491, okay, well... You've gone, you gone over the limit. 490 is the maximum. No. It's symbolic that we always be willing to forgive is the point of Matthew chapter 18. So numbers sometimes are merely used in, in a, a symbolic way. And so it is when we talk about these blocks of time here in Daniel chapter 9, they are symbolic of just periods of time. Not some exact number, but symbolic of periods of time. And when you look at the text... It talks about certain historical events that are talked about in the text. They're mentioned specifically. 
And so we can kind of plot those things along and we get the full picture of what Daniel was prophesying here in Daniel chapter 9. Alright, so let's look as we talk about the 70 weeks and some of these specific events that are mentioned. Alright, the first one, we begin over here, over on the, uh, on the left side over here. It talks about in verse 25. In verse 25 of Daniel chapter 9, it says, uh, Therefore, and understand that from the going forth of the commandment to restore and to build Jerusalem until the Messiah, the Prince, shall be seven weeks and three score and two weeks. Alright, so we understand it talks about the rebuilding of Jerusalem. You remember Daniel's in captivity. He was taken when he was a teenager at the beginning of the captivity. And he lived all the way through the captivity. And so it talks about the, the restoration of Israel. And so you had a decree by Cyrus, the king of the Medo-Persian Empire, to say, okay, for the people to go back home. Now, we read about that also, quite interest, uh, interestingly, uh, there in Isaiah chapter 44, where God prophesied through Isaiah the coming of Cyrus, the king of the Medo-Persian Empire. Notice there in verse 25, or verse 28, Isaiah 44. Thus saith of Cyrus, he is my shepherd, he's my pastor, and shall perform all my pleasure, even saying to Jerusalem, thou shalt build, uh, thou shalt be built, and to the temple thy foundation shall be laid. Chapter 45, verse 1. Thus saith the Lord to his anointed, to Cyrus, whose right hand I have holden up to subdue nations before him. I will loose the loins of the kings to open before him to leave gates, and the gates shall not be shut. And drop on down in verse 13, still talking about Cyrus. He says, I have raised up uh, him in righteousness, and I will direct all his ways. And he shall build my city, and he shall, uh, and he shall let my captives go, not for price nor reward, saith the Lord of hosts. Now, Isaiah is prophesying approximately 167 years before Cyrus was even born. I mean, this is the, I mean, he's not even born, and he's prophesying of an individual who's going to be raised up as a king, and he's going to be like a pastor or a shepherd, as a shepherd leads uh, sheep and directs sheep. He's going to be like a shepherd because he's going to tell all my captives to go by, and he's going to be involved in rebuilding the city and rebuilding the foundation of the temple. 167 years before, he's identified not only the event, but also by name, the king of the Medo-Persian Empire, his name would be Cyrus. Now, to me, that's, that's pretty fantastic. That God has that ability to look down in the stream of time and prophesy. That's pretty amazing. 167 years before. Now, you've got to remember that the Assyrian policy for several decades was dispersion, deportation, taking people off into Assyrian captivity. That's how they controlled people. It'd be like us being taken to China. I mean, who can read Chinese? Don't be ashamed if you can read Chinese. Not me. I know a couple couple of words in Chinese. But I don't even know I don't even know the alphabet of the Chinese. It's like three thousand characters, I understand. So it'd be very difficult if I was taken over in China and just dropped over there. It's like, whoa, I'm, I wouldn't even know how to read signs to get home. It'd be kind of tough. And so that was kind of the method of control for the Assyrian and then the Babylonians. So for several decades, over a century, I mean a long period of time, the practice of the ruling nations was deportation. 
was to take people out. Now, why in the world did Cyrus come up? Well, by the divine providence, Cyrus come up with the idea under the Medo-Persian Empire to, to gain the favor of people. Okay, you all can go back to your homeland. So they were allowed to go back. And that was all by divine providence. And what's interesting, as you notice there in Isaiah 45 and verse 13, it says, He shall build my city and he shall let my captives go, not for price nor reward. I mean, God didn't even pay anything. I mean, he didn't have to be paid off. He just come up with the idea and he thought that would be a good policy for his uh, world domain was to let people go and that would sort of gain the favor as they rule over various nations. And so divine providence was working. But 167 years before, God prophesied that. It'd be like if you were talking about the president of the United States. All right, we had an election in 2016. How often, guys, hey, how often do we elect presidents? How many years? Four years. We had election in 2016. When's the next election? Add four years. 2020. Next election is 2020. What's the next election after that? 2024. What's the next election after that? 2028. What's the next election after that? 2032. What's the next election after that? 2036. What's the next election after that? 2040, what's the next election after that? 2044, and the next, next election after that? 2048. In 2048, the next president of the United States is going to be Josh Gwynn. Can you imagine that? I just prophesied. <laughs> That's pretty amazing. I, I tend to doubt it, but... Well, you know, it's a, it's a guess. I guessed it. I guessed it. So in 2048, if it comes to pass, you're going to say, Well, that McKinley, he's a pretty smart guy. No, no, no. Uh, that, that just totally guesswork. But it would be pretty amazing to say in the election year of 2048, so-and-so will be the next president. Well, that's what you have, is that you have this prophecy of Cyrus. And it's described here, the restoring of Jerusalem is described here in Daniel chapter 9. So we have that first event. And then you can read the historical event, actual event there, in the book of Ezra chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. All right, so we've got another event mentioned in Daniel chapter 9, and that is it talks about the building of the walls. There in Daniel chapter 9, notice there in verse 25, Know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the commandment to restore and to build Jerusalem unto the Messiah, the prince shall be seven weeks and three score and two weeks, and the streets shall be built again, and the wall even in troublesome time. Now some translation says molt, probably trying to figure out, because you look at different translation, is that, okay, the walls were tore down in, uh, under the reign of uh, uh, Nebuchadnezzar, and so when they would take the rocks and rebuild the walls, it would sort of kind of almost symbolize a moat. But we know the walls were rebuilt when? Well, we're not left to guess about that. Well, that's the book of Nehemiah. And you read about it, 52 days, they got their act together and got working at it, and they rebuilt the walls. And so there we have another historical event mentioned here in Daniel chapter 9. Well, we go a little bit further, it talks about the coming of the Messiah and the anointing of Jesus. Notice there in number 24. 
In number 24, it says, 70 weeks are determined upon uh, upon your people and upon your holy city to finish transgression and to make an end of sin and to make a reconciliation for iniquity and to bring in everlasting righteousness and to seal up the vision and the prophecy and to anoint the most holy. Verse 25 talks about the coming of the Messiah, the anointed one. When you talk about Messiah, that's the Hebrew term. It's equivalent to the, to the Greek term, the New Testament term, Christ. Christ and Messiah both mean anointed one. And there were three classes of people that were anointed in the Old Testament. There were kings, there were prophets, and there were priests. And Jesus Christ, it's not like you say, well, Randy Parsons, and Parsons is sort of a family name. It's not like Christ is a family name. It's Jesus the Christ, Jesus the Messiah, Jesus the anointed one, because he serves in all three capacities. Jesus Christ, the anointed one. So it talks about the anointing of Jesus. Well, we know when that takes place, as we read in the book of Matthew chapter 3. In Matthew chapter 3, after Jesus was baptized, he was anointed with the Holy Spirit. Let's look there in Matthew chapter 3. Notice there number 16 and 17. It says, For Jesus, when he was baptized, went up straightway out of the water, and lo, the heavens were open unto him. And he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and lighting upon him. And lo, a voice from heaven saying, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Now we know this is the anointing of Jesus because Acts chapter 10, Peter so describes that. Notice there in Acts chapter 10, there in verse 38, when he's talking at Cornelius' house, uh, at uh, Cornelius at his house, it says how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. Who went about doing good, healing all that were uh, 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 oppressed by the devil, uh, for God was with him. Now, so we look at this this event and we just plug that in there. And we again have another historical event mentioned specifically in Daniel chapter 9. Well, there's something else that we need to see. That is the cross is mentioned. And notice there, as we look at verse 26 and verse 27. In verse 26 it says, And at the end of three score and two weeks shall the Messiah be cut off. Right? The Messiah was cut off at the cross. And so the text says, At the end of three score and two weeks. Is that correct? Yes, is that correct? At the end of three score and two weeks shall the Messiah be cut off. Is that correct? Oh, that's not correct. I didn't read that right. You're not looking at your Bibles. Does it say at the end of three score and two weeks? What does it say? After, exactly. It says after three score and two weeks. Now, there's a reason I emphasize that. Because Jesus died after three score score and two weeks. Because in premillennial theology... They say, well, the, the, the prophetic time clock, it stopped when Jesus died, and that was at the end of 62 weeks. And this final seven-week period, that's yet to be fulfilled. That's going to happen pretty soon. And they get, they just go off in a tangent, and they, I, I remember listening to a fellow on TV, and he was so-called reading, he read it right. He says that, uh, and after three score and two weeks shall the Messiah be cut off. And then he just said, oh yeah, at the end of three score and two, wait a minute, you, you can't just change words in the Bible. That changes the meaning. It didn't say at the end of three score and two weeks. See, it's not right here. It's not right here at this point that the Messiah dies. 
It's after three score and two weeks. Now notice number 27, number 27. And he shall confirm the covenant with many for one week and in the midst of the week. That's that final week. That's why I put it there in about the middle there. In the midst of the week. It says that uh, he shall uh, cause the sacrifice and the offering to cease. You see, Jesus died on the cross for our transgression. That's what verse 24 was talking about. When it says to finish transgression, to make an end of sins, to make reconciliation for iniquity and bring in everlasting righteousness. That's what Jesus did at Calvary. Jesus died on the cross to bring in righteousness, to bring in and to deal with transgression and uh, such as that. And then there in verse 25, when it says, or verse 26, when it says, after three score and two weeks shall the Messiah be cut off, but not for himself. So if the Messiah is cut off or the Messiah's life is taken, it says not for himself, well then for who? Well, for us. Jesus died for us. That's what the passage is saying. And that's a prophecy. Again, of a, of a historical event. Jesus died on the cross for our sins. For my sins. Just make it personal. Just put, for Danny's sin, the Messiah died. So just put your name right there in, in that. And then notice there in verse uh, 20, uh, 27 there. And he shall confirm the covenant, uh, confirm the covenant with many for one week. And in the midst of the week, he shall cause the sacrifice and the offering to cease. That's interesting phraseology. That in the midst of the week, he shall cause the sacrifice. He says he shall cause the, uh, he shall cause the sacrifice and the offering to cease. What does he mean by that? Well, when Jesus died on the cross, according to Colossians chapter 2, he nailed the old law to the cross. Look there in Colossians chapter 2, there in number 14. Blotting out the handwriting of oranges that was against us, which was contrary to us, and took it out of the way, nailing it to his cross. And so Jesus died on the cross. He ended the old law. Now notice something quite interesting there in Matthew chapter 27. Matthew chapter 27, look down there in number 51. Matthew chapter 27, look down in number 51. In Matthew chapter 27, number 51... And this is Jesus, he, he, uh, verse 50. And when he had cried again with a loud voice, he yielded up the ghost. So here at the point of his death on the cross, it says in verse 51, And behold, the veil of the temple was rent in twain from the bottom to the top, and the earth did quake, and the rocks rent. Did I read that right? Well, let me read it again. It says, and behold, the veil of the temple was rent in twain from the bottom to the top. No, it says from the top to the bottom. Now, you have to understand a little bit about the temple. Do I know how tall the veil that separated the holy place from the most holy place, how tall it would have been? Just guess. I mean, here, here we got curtains. There's something like that, curtains. Anybody know? It's about 20 feet. That's what I've read. Some say even taller than that. So 20 feet or 25 feet, 30 feet, 40 feet. I mean, if you're going to tear it from the top to the bottom, what are you going to need? You're going to need a ladder, exactly. You're going to have to have a ladder. Now, it's possible to start at the bottom, and I could rip this curtain to start at the bottom, and it would rip from the bottom all the way to the top. But if it rips from the top to the bottom, and you don't have ladders, well, who did the tearing? 
That would have been God. God was involved in that. And the point is that God, as it were, was withdrawing His presence from the temple. You remember God said, I'm going to put my glory in the most holy place. And there He would meet the people and the high priest would go in once a year to offer those sacrifices for Himself and for the people. And that was all in the, in the ceremony uh, of the Old Testament law. Well, Jesus offered Himself... And so at the fulfillment of all these things in the Old Testament, fulfilling the law, he nailed the cross to the law. Or nailed the, the law to the cross. And so the law came to an end there at the cross. He ended transgression and, and iniquity and all that that is providing the ultimate sacrifice for us is described here in Daniel chapter 9. So it's important to look at the details, exactly what the text is talking about. And then the text mentions one other event. And that's down in number 27. Well, even at the end of verse 26. It says, and, and, it shall, uh, and its end shall be with a flood, and unto the end the war uh, desolation, desolations are determined. And he shall confirm the covenant with many for one week. And in the midst of the week he shall cause the sacrifice and offering to cease. And the overspreading of the abominations he shall make it desolate, even unto the consummation. And, and that are determined shall be poured out upon the desolate. What's he talking about there? He's talking about the destruction of Jerusalem. You see, the law came and it came at an end in Daniel uh, in, uh, in the, at the cross. It was nailed to the cross. The law ended at the cross, but the outward vestige of what was taking the temple, the temple service, all these things that they continued on for a period of time. So it looked like everything was as as normal, but it wasn't. And that's why the Hebrew writer talks about, when he talks about the law and the things of the law that they were continuing on. Notice there, let me just, just read that for you. In the book of Hebrews there, in Hebrews chapter 8 there. In Hebrews chapter 8 verse 13, In that he saith a new covenant, he hath made the first old. Now that which decayeth and waxeth old is ready to vanish away. See, the temple was still standing. It was the old covenant. It became old. When it was nailed to the cross. Because he ushers in the new covenant. And so he talks about that which uh, decays and waxes old. Then he talks about it's going to vanish away. Well, what vanished away was this last historical event, the destruction of Jerusalem. That he just wiped out the temple, he wiped out the records, he, he just wiped it all, just wiped it off the face of the earth. That's it. It's gone. It's finished. And Jesus says in Matthew chapter 24, this was fulfilled in the destruction of Jerusalem, this prophecy of Daniel chapter 9. Now notice there in Matthew chapter 24, which contextually talks about the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple. It says in verse 15, When ye therefore shall see the abomination of desolation spoken by Daniel the prophet, stand in the holy place, whoso uh, whoso readeth, let him understand, then let them which be in Judea flee into the mountains. So this abomination of desolation was the destruction of Jerusalem. That God or Jesus would come through the Roman army and it would be like a sweeping flood. I don't know if you've ever been around a river when it begins to swell. I've seen videos and different things. And when a river gets up, there's just no stopping it. It's like a monster. And it'll just sweep houses and cars and bridges away. The water, and, and when not just the water, but the mud that's in the water, even makes it more weighty and more powerful, and it just sweeps things away like it's nothing. 
It's like you're brushing off dander. And he'll just sweep these, these vehicles and houses away. And that's what was going to happen when the Roman army would come marching in. It would just sweep these people away. There was about a million people that died in the Roman-Jewish war. There in Jerusalem. I mean, it's just tremendous the, the number of people. There were dead bodies laying everywhere. A million people. That's like a third of the population of Kentucky. And, and in one city just laying around. And so it was the abomination of desolation. And it was divine judgment being brought upon the Jewish nation. And so there you have the 70-week prophecy described there in Daniel chapter 9. Now, as we mentioned, the final point of the lesson, three practical observations to learn. Well, number one, God's ability to foresee, to prophesy, to forecast the future. That's just, to me, that's, that's fantastic. It's incredible. God's ability to look down the eons of time and just think, well, wow, this is going to happen and just talk about events. And these events just come fast. I mean, you know, I can say, oh, yeah, well, in 2018, we're going to have a hurricane in the United States. No, duh. Yeah, we're going to have a tornado this year. Well, no, duh. But if you could specify the day and where it hits and all kinds of things like that, well, you might say, whoa. I mean, anybody can... Guess things. That's the problem. A lot of people just guess. God doesn't guess. He says this is the way it's going to be. And it would come to pass, just like God says it. I mean, you look at all these historical events that we said, it all came to pass. God's ability to foresee, just like He has foretold that the world is going to come to an end. The earth will stand no more. There's coming a day of judgment. We can bank on that. God has proven himself to be faithful. And when he says this is going to happen, well, you can just write it down. Just count it. Bank on it. Yeah, it's going to happen. Just like God says. That's pretty impressive to think about God's ability to prophesy and to proceed. And then there's another very practical lesson. And that is the Messiah being cut off. In the midst of that final week, the Messiah being cut off, but not for himself. He's cut off for our sins. The Messiah dies for us. Jesus dies on the cross. It is because of God's grace. It's because of God's mercy, of God's compassion that Jesus dies on the cross. And as the text tells us there in verse 24, it says... uh, Uh, To finish transgression, to make an end of sins, to make reconciliation for iniquity. You see, iniquity is what separates us from God. The cross makes it possible for us to be reconciled, to be brought together as one in Christ. And as we see there in verse 26, the Messiah shall be cut off, or the Messiah shall die, but not for himself. He's dying for us. And Jesus died in order that we could be forgiven. That's just a tremendous, very powerful lesson to think about. And then a third very practical lesson, and that is the destruction and doom of the disobedient. Notice there in the book of Romans chapter 10, uh, Romans chapter 11, excuse me. In Romans chapter 11, Paul makes a statement. <clears throat> he says, uh, there in verse 22, Behold therefore the goodness... And the severity of God. The goodness and the severity of God. And what do we learn from that? Well, what we learn from that, that there are two sides to God. I mean, people want to talk about the love of God, the mercy of God, the peace of God, the compassion of God. Amen, amen, a thousand amen. That's the absolute truth. God is a God of love. God is love. The Bible tells us 1 John chapter 4. 
But if that's the only, only, only thing we see about God, that God's love, we're going to have a skewed view. It's sort of like, let me borrow your notebook there, William. It's like, if you were looking at a mirror, if you look straight into the mirror, you see what? You see your image exactly the way it is. If you kind of distort the mirror, what are you going to look like? You're going to look weird. You're going to look kind of skinny. And if you turn it this way, you're going to look really, really wide or fat. And if you kind of skew it this way, you're going to look really short. And if you twist it this way, you're going to look real tall. And if you do it all kind of whopper jaw, you're really going to look weird. Yeah, you get a distorted view. Well, so it is that if we only see one side of God, that is, oh, God's a God of love, God's a God of mercy, etc., and we never look at the other side, we have a distorted view of God. And it's true also, if all we ever see, the God's a God of wrath, and the anger of God, and the vengeance of God, and the justice of God, if that's all we see, again, we have a distorted view of our God. You've got to see both sides, which provides balance and, and a complete understanding about God. Yeah, we need to see His love. Yeah, we need to see His compassion. Absolutely. But we better understand the severity of God also. And when we study there in Daniel chapter 9 about what happened to the Jewish nation uh, there in AD 70, it was severe judgment. It was divine punishment. It was divine wrath poured out upon disobedient people. And ladies and gentlemen, there's coming a day when there will be divine wrath poured out in the day of judgment. When the Lord will tell the disobedient, the goats, the stubborn, rebellious people, depart from me, you curse into an everlasting fire, prepared for the devil and his angel. And I don't, I don't want to hear that. And we don't want you to hear that either. We want you to hear the good side. Come, you blessed of my Father, and inherit the kingdom prepared from you from the foundation of the world. That's what we want. We want, to, we want the good side. But better, be sure you understand both sides of God so you can have a complete, full understanding and the correct picture of Jehovah God. All right, Jesus died for you. That's what we studied. Jesus died. Now, question is, do you believe that message? Do you believe Jesus is the Savior? Do you believe Jesus is the Redeemer? I mean, we've talked about it. Jesus said, go preach the gospel. And the word gospel means good news. So go preach good news. What's the good news? Well, Jesus died for our sins. To end transgression, to put an end to iniquity, that we can find reconciliation. And so there's got to be a human response. That is, we've got to believe this message. We've got to repent and turn to God. We've got to confess Jesus uh, as Lord before man. And then we've got to uh, uh, be baptized into Christ. We've got a pool of water. We've got garments. Things are made convenient for you to obey the gospel of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. But that's your decision. Not my decision. When it came to Danny, Danny made the decision for Danny. When it came to Randy, Randy makes a decision for Randy. When it comes to Luke, Luke makes a decision for Luke. And so it is with each one of us. So the message is there. The opportunity to obey is there. God's willing. God's ready. Jesus' blood has been shed. All provisions have been made for your salvation, for your reconciliation. But you have to make the decision. And if we can help you in that, making that decision by coming forward to say, yeah, I want to become a Christian, we'll help you. We'll help uh, get your garments, show you where your garments are, you can get changed, you can confess your faith in the Lord, and you can be baptized even tonight. And then we're to walk in newness of life. When we come out of that watery grave, just grow and be faithful. And if we do, eh, come back through repentance and prayer. We're going to sing this song of encouragement. If there's one here, even tonight, that needs to make your life right, and you want to make that decision, 
We'll be ready to help you. You come and let us know what, how we can help. While together as we stand and as we sing.